0: Okay, so um, last week we talked about the destructiveness of idols, um, the tragic impact that idols have on our lives. We've been talking about worship, focusing on uh, worshiping God. That's our theme for the new year. Loving the God who first loved us, kind of riffing off of uh, our our theme from last year. Uh, We love because He first loved us, of course, from the fourth chapter of 1 John. And uh, idolatry is something we focused on in the month of February um, in our community group uh, material and also in my sermons, because idolatry is a sort of distortion of the idea of worship. It's a form of worship. As we've said, we're all wired for worship. There's not a person alive, believer, unbeliever, agnostic, atheist, robust believer, who isn't a worshiper. The question isn't whether we worship, the question is what we will worship. And we've tried to look at how idolatry, which is misdirected worship or uh, loves that are out of order um, can, can really be destructive. And that's why there's so many biblical warnings and admonitions about the dangers of idolatry, two of which are here on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says, Flee from idolatry. If you see it in your life, if it's nearby, take off the other way. That's not a, a, a mild verb, right? That's get out of dodge. I mean, idolatry is dangerous. And then a a verse that we looked at a little bit last week from 1 John 5, verse 21. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. These are pretty serious admonitions. But there's one issue, one challenge I think we all face as we try to honor these these warnings, these admonitions. And that is, it's assuming the writer in 1 Corinthians, Paul, and John in 1 John 5 are both assuming as they warn us against idolatry and and telling us to keep them out of our lives, they're assuming that we know how to identify an idol, right? You, You can't very well avoid something that you can't identify. Let me illustrate that with this picture. Can anybody identify this beautiful plant? Wow. Glossy, shiny, verdant. Vibrant with life, just growing everywhere. What is it? Poison ivy, yeah. Um, if you, you know, want to go out in the woods or need to go out in the woods and you want to identify this noxious plant uh, and want to avoid it, rather, you've you got to know how to identify it. Um, I, I think either me or my dad got poison ivy every single one of the yard days at your houses. One of the two of us are both. Um, I didn't always tell you about it, but one over two of us, we'd come home and, like, two, three days later, I'm going to get my steroid, because I don't get rid of it usually without a steroid. Um, this stuff's all over the place. And out west, they have another version of it. And, you know, there's poison sumac and poison oak and all that. So, but I can't avoid it if I don't know what it looks like. There's a lot of things in the woods that are kind of close to that that aren't that, that are fine. And it's like that with idols. The problem with idols is they are, they, are thing, they are distortions of great blessings God gave us usually. The things most likely to be the most powerful idols are the things that are the best things God made. But as we saw last week, they're things God made. They're not God. And so we're going to talk more about that today, um, especially from the standpoint of how now do we identify our idols. And I want to tell you something as we go on to this sermon. This sermon has great potential for me to make you mad at me. I'm just going to say it. When you start naming your idols, um, this, is, this is for grown men and women. This isn't child's play. It's hard to name your idols. You're, we're going to be cutting to the core of things like our identity. Right? We're going to make ourselves uncomfortable this morning. So I'm just, get mad at me. That's fine. I'm ready. I've been praying about it. Uh, know this. I'm with you. I'm probably ahead of most of you in terms of failing or at least a lot of you in terms of failing you know and, and our, our idols are different sometimes but we all have them and so um, we need to heed these biblical uh, admonitions okay as we try to identify our idols where are some places we should look where are some likely places we should look we could talk about this for the rest of the year probably uh, profitably um, I want to suggest three areas uh, today um, that we want to uh, consider as potential areas where we might find uh, some idols. The first of which, we've got to be willing to look inside our own hearts. We've got to look inside our own hearts. We've got to be willing to honestly look deeply within ourselves. And that's not always fun. But how do we do this? Let me suggest to you some litmus test questions that are not original with me. There's a wonderful book. I don't usually do this because, you know, books, you know, I quote books and I, I might disagree with the person on the next page after I quote. My, my quoting of a book is never sanction of an entire author's work. Um, I hope you know that. that. That's an illogical conclusion to draw. He's quoted, you must think everything the person says uh, is right. I hope you don't take everything I say in my sermons as right unless they square with the Bible. This is basically an oral form of a book every week. And you might quote something from that later, you know, that you heard, if it's biblical. So with that caveat, this is a book that I can't think of anything in it I don't uh, agree with. It's a little book. It's very accessible but very profound. It can change your life if you meditate on some of the things that Tim Keller talks about. Here, It's called Counterfeit Gods. It's just a study of idolatry. Some of you have that because we've talked about this before. But in this book... Um, There there are some kind of what what I would call litmus test questions that Timothy Keller lays out as kind of questions that can help us identify our our idols. In other words, it's one thing to say, let's identify idols. Um, But how? So here's some questions that might help us do that. He's got three or four or five in there, I think. But I I remember these two. It's been a while since I've read the book. But a, a couple of them were something like this. Think about this question if you're trying to identify your idols what is your worst nightmare Hmm? your worst nightmare so in other words um ask yourself the question if i lost blank i don't know that life would would be worth living I, i couldn't go on if i lost blank your worst nightmare or second litmus test question what's your greatest dream your most fabulous dream your fantasy about just the perfection that that, the, that life could, could you know, have, could hold for me. If I could just get blank, or just have blank, or just get in blank situation, then I could be truly whole. Life would be complete. If your answer to either of those two questions, if you filled in the blank with anything besides God, You've identified a possible item. So your worst nightmare. What's your worst nightmare? Is it that I should lose my work or lose my career? Is it that you know, my presidential candidate that I want to win doesn't win? Can the world go on? From a lot of things a lot of Christians are saying, no, no like God doesn't run the world you know God existed a lot a long time before the Republican or Democratic Party did in America they didn't even exist in the 1830s well the Democratic Party did but we had the Whigs Republican Party didn't even exist until 1850s and it's gone back and forth and America before America existed (laughs) world's been did you know that existed before 1776 so we got these ideas that this doesn't happen I don't know What's your worst nightmare? That I should lose my income? That they take my guns away? Or for me, that somebody tries to condo my books? You can condo anything you want. You know that Netflix show. Don't be condoing my books. Like I'll tell Sheree, like, yeah, okay, well, I'll clean my closet up. There's a lot of stuff I haven't worn in a while. Fine, take it. The books, ah! I really get a little bit scared. Like, it's, it's like a... Very disconcerting feeling. But, you know, we could go on and on. Some of these sound silly, not that big a deal. Something should happen to my family member, my loved one. You know, we've all got the things. What about your your most wonderful dream? Maybe it's that that I will finally be accepted by so and so, or that I can finally be included in such and such a social group, a peer group, or that I can make X amount of money, or that I can find uh, you know, my my soulmate, or that my spouse will, will meet all my needs as I understand them, or that my kids will turn out like X or this or that. I and mean, we could go on and on with these things. And I want to be clear here, so don't don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with desiring good things, security, uh, being loved, having a good reputation family, food, adventure, uh, beauty. God made all of that. There's nothing wrong with that. Until we take merely good things and we turn them into ultimate things. And effectively what we've done is we're, we're operating with a God replacement. In other words, an idol. Whether we think of it that way or not, that's what it is. Functionally, that's your God. On some level, maybe it's not black and white or this, 100% this way 100%, but it, you've mixed in some God replacements with God. If your well-being has to do with anything other than God himself and you being in his presence, in his arms, you've got an element, a degree of idolatry. And I would hazard the guess that we're all guilty of that. So what do we do with that? Do we just go, ah, that's just the way it is? No, we're told keep yourselves from idols from idols. So how do we identify with them? Well, we've got to look deeply within our hearts. All right, to t- let's take it a, 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 bit, a bit deeper here. How do we do that? How do I look within my heart? Let me uh, talk about some other things that, that Tim Keller and others who've written uh, you know, books on idolatry and kind of looked at the Bible you know, completely, like holistically, and from one cover to the other, and tried to like discern what, it is, what is the essence of idolatry, what does it look like, how do we know we have it? Let me suggest to you a gauge. You know, you're driving along in your car and you got these gauges, you know, you know on your dash there. And they're, they're supposed to tell you what's going on under the hood, right? Yep. And if, if one of them goes haywire and the needle goes all the way over to hot or whatever, you're probably gonna, you know, stop and look under the hood. I mean, I don't know why I would ever do that because I don't know what anything under there is, but I've seen it in movies. So you pop the hood, and, you know, <laughs> and then call somebody. But it's a gauge, so what are gauges for us that that maybe we have some idols under the hood? Let me tell you what a range of them, where where we might look for to find a range of these indicators, these gauges. Think about the way you emotionally react to certain situations, um, to the idea that something you really, really like or feel like you really, really need might be uh, in jeopardy a bit, Or that something you want to find or get may not happen. There's some impediment to that. Somebody's blocking the way. How do you react to that? And we all have that. That's that's just daily life, right? Think about your emotional reactions. Sometimes our emotional reactions suggest some deep idol that, that maybe we feel is under threat. And that's why we're reacting the way we do. So think about irritability. Irritability isn't just... Uh, everybody gets irritable something yeah, maybe maybe there's something going on chemically and you woke up that day wrong side of the bed a lot of times I would guess that most of the time if we're irritable especially as a matter of course that's a gauge that says we may be able to look under the hood why are we getting so irritable what about anger frustration what about impatience What about an intense preoccupation you have with something, some one thing, some one situation? You just keep coming back to that over and over and over. In your free time, that's what your mind comes back to. You're just obsessing on it. You've got this this sort of intense preoccupation. Why is it that we have those kinds of emotional reactions? And what do those say about what's under the hood, as it were? Well, maybe we're worried about certain things that we think are crucial for our well-being that aren't God being in jeopardy. That's just the one thing, uh, the situation, or whatever, that I must have. Really, you, you really just must have God. And so we get irritable. We get angry. We get jealous and envious. We're not content. We're complaining all the time. These are real indicators of real psychological, emotional, spiritual things. And and, and psychological and emotional states like these are what Galatians 5 refers to as works of the flesh. I mean, some of the very things I just said are in this list. I want you to notice how many of these works of the flesh have to do with sort of being emotionally or psychologically not at ease, uncomfortable, (laughs) angst-ridden. The works of the flesh are evident, he says. And he lists several of them which are... uh, sort of moral uh, constraints thrown away because you're pursuing these things like their idols, whether it's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. He actually lists idolatry in verse 20. But then notice this other list. A large percentage of these works of the flesh, so-called in Galatians 5, are things that have to do with anger and strife and irritability and impatience. Enmity. That means you don't get along with people very well. Doesn't take much to set you off just a little perturbed most of the time right your resting face is this you know kinda you want some of this like there were kids like that in high school like what I'm walking to class dude just looking to fight why you know there's folks in churches like that when we gonna mess up next you're just on looking looking for just fearful strife jealousy Not content with what you got, you want what the other person has. Fits of anger. Rivalries. If you go up, I must go down, because it's a zero-sum game. It's a rivalry. Dissensions, divisions, and we can go on and on and on with the list. Those can be indicators that we feel the things we typically resort to, the things we think we need or want or crave or long for, are in question. And so what do we do? We resort, we react to... Uh, the only way we can, if all we are trusting in is ourselves and our idols, we've got to fight back. And these emotions indicate that, that we need more God in us. What does it look like, or what would it look like, if we were filled to the brim, not with our idols, but with God himself? What fruit would having God inside you, having God's own spirit coursing through you, animating you 24-7, what would that look like? What kind of fruit would that produce? Well, the very next section of this text tells us. As opposed to the works of the flesh, Paul writes, but the fruit of God's Spirit, the Spirit here is talking in context, of course, about the Spirit of God. When God's Spirit is in you, and those idols are pushed out because they're so much less interesting and beautiful and fun and exciting, you just not, you lose interest in them. Your heart's been captivated by something bigger and more glorious. What happens is this fruit is produced. Not by you, not by your bootstraps effort. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of your effort. I think we we read this that way a lot. I've got to get my act together. No, it's the fruit of God's Spirit. You've got to let that happen, though. And it won't happen if idols are in there taking up the space. That's your call. God God made you a, a volitional, free will creature. Look here, though. What happens is we get joy. We get peace. Patience. Kindness. Things like gentleness. Gentle. Situation's not exactly like you would have scripted out. It's not what you thought you needed. Maybe everything isn't exactly right with my kids. Or, you know, the marriage, we're still a work in progress. I didn't get the promotion. You know, my income isn't what I dreamed it would be. I think I like my possessions until I see somebody else's, and then I'm like, oh, you know cursed instagram the discontent machine they're having fun i thought i was having fun i you know and that some of the, there's some good stuff about that but my goodness it just magnifies the scope of us to be able to see other people doing things that we can be envious of and think they've got a perfect life you know facebook or whatever and really that's a curated artificial life probably too because If we believe the Bible, everybody's a sinner and broken. Anyway, think about how liberating it would be to be filled with joy, peace, patience, gentleness. So, to uncover our idols, we've got to be willing to ask of ourselves these hard questions. And these are hard questions. They often cut to the the core of our identity, truth be told. These things have become so integrated in our lives that to, to shave them off is shaving. We feel like a part of ourselves, but it can be good for us. We've got to take a deep dive into our own hearts. So that's the first point. But the, the next two areas we're going to talk about when it comes to identifying our idols, I would say, you know, potential areas where idols lurk potentially, they're even more, um, well, less obvious areas. It's hard to see the ones in our own heart sometimes because they're not as obvious until we start, until we start asking these questions but, of ourselves. But maybe even less obvious, requiring more subtlety in our, in our uh, detection skills, more critical thinking, um, would be the next two areas we want to talk about. So back to our poison ivy illustration. You know, if, you, if you're going to go in the woods and yet you want to avoid poison ivy, you, you may need to know a little bit about botany. Sorry, who needs to know botany? Well, get poison ivy then, 47 times in a row. You either learn to identify it, or you don't mess with it, and, and you get it again. So, this little guy is not poison ivy. Anybody know what that is? Very good. It's often, I don't know if it's this is part of the curse or what, but it's very often right with poison ivy and poison oak, in a thicket, like a, together. And I, I, I can't tell you how many people I've known walking down a trail who go, oh, go get that that's poison ivy. No, it's not. It's Virginia Creeper. It's beautiful in the fall. You know, it turns orange and all that. Um, but I, I, what do I know? I get poison ivy every other time I go in the woods. I think, I think of that picture. I'm already starting to itch. I'm just looking at the picture. Oh, you know, probably. Um, so the point is, we need to know how to pick out the noxious stuff from the harmless stuff that it's often intertwined with. And God and idols are often like that for us because we're sinners and because the idols are usually some riff off of, a, they always are, a created thing that God made. Satan doesn't make anything. He's, he only can use the things God made. And that combined with with our self-absorption, with our you know existential narcissism. We all are narcissists biblically. We're like Eve. We say, you know, thank you, God, I got it back off I'll eat the fruit and take my chances we want to be in control and so what happens is um, we we lose the ability to think clearly and we can't tell the noxious weed from the the harmless one that's what we got to do though if we're gonna be people who keep ourselves from idols however painful that process might be so let's talk about another one now not only can idols come from within our own hearts you know, and our, our emotional reactions can be indicators, dashboard gauges pointing to some problem deep within about what and what whom we really are worshiping functionally. Not what we're saying Sunday in church, but you know, during the week, on the weekend. This area, though, is a little different. I want to talk about identifying idols in, for lack of a better phrase, in the very air we all breathe. In the air we breathe. What do we mean by that? So I quoted two, or three weeks ago from a famous speech by a now deceased um, writer named David Foster Wallace. In that speech, he cites this little parable that I've heard. I don't know who. I don't know that he originated this because I've heard it for much of my adult life. But it's a little story about two young fish. Picture two little fish. They're friends. They live in the stream. And they one morning, one bright morning, you know, sun shining down through the stream. They're swimming along the stream and they pass an older fish swimming the opposite way, you know. And the older fish says to the two younger fish, how's the water, boys? And they swim on by and he swims on by. And as the two young fish continue on, one of them turns to the other and says, what in the world is water? The world's water. And, you know, you may think, well, that doesn't make any sense. They're fish, but that's kind of the point. They're oblivious to water precisely because it's literally all around them. They've never been a place where there isn't water. Right? they never, they don't know a, a, a why would you have a word for something that's sort of just everywhere? It's just their environment. It's just reality. It's just. Normal. It's their world. They've never known anything else. And so my question for you and for me this morning is, what's the water of our culture? What's the water of our society? What's just the world we live in? You know, the things that we might be blind to because we just take them for granted. They're just normality. They're just the way things are. Because they're so everywhere. It's so inundated with it. What's the water of our culture? Let me suggest to you this morning, and this is a thing you can chew on and think about and I think apply almost endlessly, but a couple of leading candidates. If, if some person from Mars were to land on planet Earth and come to the United States of America and, and, and look at it and the way it operated and the, the assumptions its citizens had, Versus other places in the world, or other places in the past, where they privy to earlier, you know, uh, benefits beneficiaries of earlier visits to this planet, you know, two centuries ago or something like that. What would they notice was conspicuous about American culture? One of the things they would probably notice is our hyper individualism. Again, if you say I don't, I don't see that, that's water. That's my point. It's so normal. It's so what we're used to. We have trouble seeing it. It just looks like the way people are, the way we are, the way things should be, actually. And what I'm talking about here is individual liberty. Your right, my right, to be free to do whatever we want when we want with no external constraints. Boy, is that not a birthright? We actually refer to that. Politicians will run on this. Military figures will come back from theater somewhere and talk about defending our way of life that's a pretty vague phrase what does that mean I think a lot of what it means is freedom to do whatever we want it's, there's no script to follow that's the cool thing about it and it, there's a lot of beauty in that personally coercing somebody you know somebody's only serving God because they're worried they're going to go to jail if they don't you kind of wonder are they even being Jesus never does that it's always moral suasion he lets people walk and put them in headlocks. So I, I, love, I really am, uh, feel uh, very blessed to have a, a, a culture that prizes individual freedom. And I know a lot of work and sacrifice has gone into that throughout the last two, three hundred years. But is it possible that my right to do whatever I want without any constraints can become an idol? And if, boy, that's if not only if that's challenged. If there is a hint of a hint of a hint of it's being challenged, I lose my mind. In ways that the Bible just doesn't at all support. If we're remotely honest. Now, this individualism, this obsession with individual liberty, can take many different expressions. It manifests itself in many different ways. But I want to suggest to you that it is nearly universal in our culture. In other words, you and I can get really perplexed sometimes at ways, you know, maybe extreme ways that certain celebrities and big-time athletes and recording artists insist on their individual right of self-expression, and we're like, wow, that is just weird. Don't you try to tell me that I can't express self-expression. You know what I'm talking about? There's a new one every, shocking one every five minutes. That's kind of where that leads. And we think, well, that's so weird. But let someone try to tell us what to do with just our free time. Or how we should spend our money. And we get pretty bent out of shape too. Because individualism, individual rights, my right to do what I want when I want without external constraint has been elevated to something of an idol in our culture. Hear Tim Keller on this from a book he wrote many, many years ago. He's talking about political conservatism and political liberalism in America. I think this is still true, even though he wrote this book in the 80s, I think. He says, the left, so political liberals, expect a citizen to be held legally accountable for the use of his wealth. Right? Ready to redistribute, tax more than other people would want him to, that kind of thing. But look at this. So the left expects a citizen to be held legally accountable for the use of his wealth, but totally autonomous in other areas such as sexual morality. Don't you touch my sexuality. Don't be coming in my bedroom. You know, nobody should ever, no government should ever do that. We can come into your pocketbook all day long. But the right flips this. The political conservatives expect a citizen to be held legally accountable in areas of personal morality, but totally autonomous in the use of his wealth. Right? We're gonna legislate on morality and sexuality and all that. How dare you raise taxes or redistribute income? It's my pocketbook. It's my individual pocketbook. That, well, a, a liberal democrat might say that's my individual sexuality. Who are you to tell me what the, you see what I'm saying? It's kind of the same thing and that's Keller's point. The North American idol, radical individualism, lies beneath both these ideologies and a Christian sees either solution as fundamentally humanistic and simplistic. If your basic point is I can do whatever I want when I want and you, nobody, the government, you, my peers, can tell me what to do and I'm going to lose my mind if that gets, if there's even a a suggestion that it's going to be tampered with, we have raised that thing, which is maybe a blessing on some level, to an idol status. All right. One more. Our proverbial Martian visiting our country might also say your culture is really materialistic. You guys are like, I mean, a lot of people are, but you you guys may have raised it to an art form of of like measuring people's worth by their possessions and their income and social status, status, stati? Their social status, social statuses. Um, So materialism, and what I mean by this is not philosophical materialism, like you think there's only molecules and matter and there's no spirituality. I don't mean that kind of, I'm talking about you know, financial materialism, obsession with stuff, with things, with possessions, and with the money, by the way, necessary to acquire said things. That's, that's what we mean by materialism. Colossians 3.5 very succinctly says that covetousness is idolatry. And let me dismiss, debunk a little bit of a semi-Christian myth um, here. The word covetousness, the Greek word for covetousness, it's used in the New, Te- all, all, in the New Testament many, many times, is not limited to, hear me out on this now, it does not only mean, so you're not off the hook if you avoid just this and nothing else. You want something somebody else has. That's just not what, look a word up in a lexicon. It is sometimes used that way contextually because if the word for, for covetousness is a word that it would be better translated avarice. It's the desire for more stuff, for more, ever more, ever more, ever more. Never enough. Greed would be closer to it. I think that's why the New American Standard translates this word greed. I don't really love that translation either, because a lot of us say, What about that? I'm not greedy. That's Jeff Bezos. I mean there's I don't know if he's greedy. He's got a lot of money. Do you need to be greedy when you own the the GDP of a small nation? I don't know. Anyway, we we can always point to somebody else and that's greed. I don't have that car, right? I don't have a handmade Italian sports car. I just have you know, a $300,000 one that it got was made in a factory, or whatever. All the way down to, you know, the $700, you know, clunker that we all once drove, you know, that's can't even get from point A to point B. Whatever. I mean, somebody doesn't have that. So it's, it's just the idea of I want more, I want more. It is an inordinate emphasis on stuff. That's what the word means. How many of us does that apply to? Maybe all? On some level. I know I'm guilty of that. Well, he calls that idolatry. God made material things. There's nothing wrong with them. We're not advocating a dualistic, Gnostic, you know, all fleshly things are bad, all spiritual things are good. Spiritual in the Bible typically means using worldly, physical things for good, for God's glory. It doesn't mean acting like they don't exist. Otherwise, why does God tell us to help poor people? Give them material things. Instead of, hey, get over it. Just study your Bible. No, he doesn't do that. So this is an idol because we've taken a good thing, things, stuff, matter, created things, and elevated it to an ultimate thing. And the only way to defeat materialism or any other idol is to recognize and admit that it is on some level a kind of God replacement. We're trying to get from that material possession or the financial wherewithal to go buy these possessions whenever we want without restraint. We're trying to get from that, find a kind of life fulfillment from that that only God can truly provide. And and it's functionally a God replacement. Maybe not 100%, but in part. Do you see that? So I would like to um, share with you one more quote um, first of all, a, 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 a passage from Isaiah 55, verse 2. Where is that? Here we go. Um, the prophet asked the people of Israel, Judah, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? I don't think he's literally saying here, hey, you're, spend, you're not good with budgets. I think he's using spend your money here for your efforts. Why are, you, why are you trying to be fulfilled by stuff which really isn't satisfying? That isn't actually the kind of bread that you need. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And what he's talking about is return to me. Come back to your father. Come back to your mother, he says in other places in Isaiah, essentially. Like, I want to nurse you at my breast. You're my little baby, Israel, and you've forsaken me. Why? It's not for your own good. You know, he's trying to gather them back in and and get them to see that he alone can give them this kind of ultimate fulfillment that they're seeking in material things. So, back to this quote here from Paul David Tripp's little book called Awe. It's about how the awe for God, a sense of awe for the Almighty, lies at the heart of everything that is Christianity. So, it all starts with our vision of God, just like Isaiah 6. You know, in the year that Isaiah was lifted up, behold, I saw the Lord. And it all flows from there. How you get saved, He's, woe is me. God has to initiate with a, a coal from off the altar. To our mission, who will go for us? Here am I, send me. I mean, the whole thing flows out of seeing God correctly. That's why worship lies at the heart of everything. Not just what we do in here, but, but what, what captures your heart? What captivates you? What are you smitten by? What do you desire? If it's anything besides God, we got problems. Here's Tripp talking about materialism and how it's a God replacement. Material things, he writes, are a miserable place to look for life. The mistake we all make is the moment-by-moment, day-to-day loss of our awe. It is why we tend to be so spiritually empty, so consistently unfulfilled, and so driven to fill up our lives with so many things. I want you to think about yourself in the light of these words. Always driven to find something else, a kind of restlessness. Where does that come from? He says it's why we tend to be spiritually empty, consistently unfulfilled. It is why we tend to be anxious and depressed. It is why we tend to be more jealous than thankful. It is why so many of us are unhappy. It is why we all tend to be looking for the next big thing. We make the profound mistake of looking horizontally for what can only be found vertically. Material things capture our awe. We're worshiping them. Just call it what it is. Give it to God. That's what He wants you to do. He'll heal you. we got to give it to God. We're worshiping other stuff. We love other things more than Him. We do. And the way you use your time and the way you spend your money and the things you worry about and the things you dream about, those are indicators. I'm guilty of all of this, but you probably are too <laughs> because we're human. And this is just bible 101 they capture our awe instead of him and in so doing material things dominate our lives because we mistakenly think they can give us the one thing they will never give and that is life here's the bottom line trip writes when all of the creation replaces awe of the creator you will have a terrible time controlling your craving for and pursuit of material things get this biblical literacy and theological knowledge won't help you a bit because at the deepest level of the motivation of your heart, a deadly exchange has already taken place. And because it has, you keep running after the created world, hoping, hoping that it will be your personal Messiah. They exchanged the glory of God for the glory of material things, Romans 1. That's the essence of idolatry. We don't get the glory. The glory's misplaced. That's, that's worship language. The weight, the substance has been attributed to something which can't bear it. Created things instead of the one whose it is for eternity, God, and God alone. Okay, in the Exodus, God had liberated the Israelites from Egypt, remember? To go out into the desert to worship Him. He says that over and over. I'm going to bring you out of the desert, not just to free you and go do your thing and write your own story, like liberation theology sometimes seems to hint, but we're freeing you. Yes, slavery is bad, but... We don't want you to fall and, and, and you know, become enslaved to something else of your own device. Come out here to in the desert to worship me, the language says, over and over. Well, when they get out there and they're at the foot of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai and God's giving them the law that will help direct their worship, so He's doing what He said He wanted to do for them on their behalf. God doesn't need them. What do they do? Well, they're getting the law. We looked at this last week. We're going to look at it again next week, too. So... It's like David said, we heard that before. We need to hear everything 4,000 times. I'm making different points from the same text. Anyway, so what's weird about this, there's a lot of things weird. (laughs) Making a golden calf is, by definition, in my opinion, weird. But, I'm not Egyptian. You say, well, they were Israelites. Yeah, they are Israelites who lived in Egypt for several centuries. And you you can take the Israelites out of Egypt, but you don't necessarily take the Egypt out of Israel as quickly. You can take us out of the world, but the world's still in us. And so here they are, you know, getting the law from Yahweh, the Lord. And they're saying, hey, give us your jewelry and we'll, we'll burn it in a fire, melt it in a fire, and we'll make gods that will go before us. And they make a golden calf. But what's especially odd about this is, Aaron says that this golden calf is somehow going to represent Yahweh. Because he says, "On the tomorrow morning we're going to get up, we're going to All this stuff is going to be connected with a feast to the Lord. That's the word Yahweh in the Hebrew. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only God that's the true and living God of the Bible. So they have blended worshiping the true God with some idol that they just thought was normal. They're from Egypt like five minutes ago. Not five minutes ago, but not very long in the scheme of things. There's still fish swimming by not knowing what water is. Golden calves, images, especially the calf in Egypt, but all kinds of animal images to represent the various gods. That was normal. What The Yahweh worship, worshiping an invisible god without a physical manifestation, that's what's weird at this point in the history of the world. So they're just doing what we do all the time. They're blending worship with the Lord with a bunch of other stuff that we get from our culture. And just, well, of course we do that. Of course... Of course, radical individualism is normal. Of course, materialism is normal. Because why? Because that's the water we're swimming in. We've got to develop the capacity to look at that critically. Got to be a little more subtle in our detective skills than just drinking down the culture um, that uh, that we are, are, you know, the air that we're breathing, the water we're swimming in, whatever metaphor you want to use. Now, there's one more point but we're saving it for next week. I know your people were scared right then. <laughs> scared to death, like literally. Hmm, I could have made, that illustration earlier, right? Getting a little irritated, a little impatient. Hmm, I won't say anything else. I won't say anything about any of that, but anyway, the last one, we're gonna save this one for next week. So here's my cliffhanger. Gary Fane's always telling me to use a cliffhanger. Um, this is a cliffhanger, Gary. Some of the most insidious idols. There are insidious idols that come from our culture because they're the water we swim in and they're harder to see. That makes them more insidious. Perhaps even more insidious are the idols that come out of our faith life, that come out of religion. Is it any wonder that the main nemesis of Jesus in the four Gospels, by far, it's like 95% to 5%, are the religious conservatives of the day? It's not pagans. He's really gentle with the woman taken in adultery. The prostitutes followed him. The common people that they called sinners and publicans hung around with him. He ate with them. It was the sanctimonious Pharisees who believed they interpreted the Scriptures just perfectly because it was the way their ancestors had done it, the traditions of our elders. Those people are the number one enemy of Jesus in the Gospels. That should tell us something. Satan doesn't give up because you go to church, study the Bible, got a whole set of idols for us. They're special idols. They're actually kind of more sinister because they look righteous. They feel righteous. What are those? How could it be that we find some of our idols in the very faith that we hold dear? Come next week. Find out. I'll have to figure it out between now and next week because I'm not all the way through. Anyway, no, no. I got partly in in mind here. All right. um, Thank you for your attention today. Um, We're going to now stand and sing. If we can help anybody in their walk with the Lord... Please come to one of these chairs in the middle and let us know how we might do that. Let's stand and sing.